The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere Project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hi, and welcome to today's Deep Dive episode. We're talking with Kevin Irons today. He is the Assistant Chief of the Fisheries Division for the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. We're going to be talking about Asian carp and other invasive species in our waterways, and what Kevin and his team are doing to make sure that Asian carp are controlled in the Illinois River as they are getting closer and closer to the Great Lakes, and how we can make sure that they don't get into Canada. So sit back, relax, and get ready for an awesome conversation about Asian carp and what are we doing to deal with them. Air. Vasser. Bunny. G. Moana. Omi. Tubi. Agua. Low. Enzio. Nihu. Nay. Nuri. Roda. Miri. Echi. Chai. Shui. Maji. Why? Nero. Aqua. Roda. Water. We doing. And how can we do better? Your one stop shop for everything water related. From discussing water, its use, and the organisms that depend on it. For all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water. I'm your host, David Evans, from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, and I just want to ask you something. What are we doing, and how can we do better? Hi, and I'd like to introduce my new guest for today's episode, Kevin Irons. And Kevin, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what you do? I'm glad to, David. Uh, I'm the uh, Assistant Fisheries Chief for Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Uh, it's the Division of Fisheries. Uh, of course, we're managing fishing and uh, fisheries statewide. Uh, over the last 10 years, however, I've been the uh, Aquatic Nuisance Species Program Manager for those non-native fish uh, across the state, uh, supporting policy and uh, uh, responses as necessary for, for fish and plants and snails, aquatic critters. Um, prior to that, I was a research ecologist for the University of Illinois' Illinois River Biological Station, so spent quite a bit of time, 20 years uh, approximately, on the Illinois River, uh, looking at fish communities. And over that oh, 20 years, cool. yeah, over that 20 years, from uh, the 90s to uh, 2000s, uh, Asian carp came to the forefront, <laughs> and, and of course, I became familiar with those. I probably, it's probably good to introduce Asian carp at the same time because often people hear that moniker and they say, ah, I know what an Asian carp is. Grandpa used to catch Asian carp, you know, common carp or Johnny Appleseed all across North America in the early or or frankly, the late 1880s, 1890s. So they've been around for a while. Asian carps, species of 
big head carp, silver carp, grass carp, and black carp were brought in, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s to solve, to solve some ecological problems. So four different species, they all have a little different niche. Generally, when we see Asian carps, we're talking about the big head and silver carp. The silver carp is the one that's known to jump out of the water and hit people and jump over boats and do all those crazy things. Um, but but there are yeah. four species, so we'll just be really careful. I'll be as careful as I can, but generally talking about big head and silver carp today. Yeah, it's. I think it's something that there's actually four species and they're kind of generalized a lot as just Asian carp as being these kind of monsters <laughs> that lurk in the deeps. But there are four different species. They all have different roles in an ecosystem or, or niches and, and ways that they exploit ecosystems. What was your first introduction to Asian carp? And when did you really start to think that they might become a problem and that they'd become a nuisance species for, for the Illinois area? Sure. Um, so I came to Illinois uh, from Ohio in 1991 as a river ecologist working on the river, uh, noting um, well, all the, the species, about 115 different species on the Illinois River. We regularly would collect about 80 of them mm -hmm. annually in multiple gears um, as part of a long-term monitoring program that's on the Illinois and Mississippi River. And uh, very unique, but right. being able to track those things through time, um, whether it's a, a minnow species like an emerald shiner or uh, invasive or, or non-native species like common carp or goldfish or sport fish like bass or bluegill or crappie. Those were all caught by these various gears. Yeah. Um, but when I came out in the 91, there was this story of a commercial fisherman, uh, and we always talk. With, with a smile when we talk about our commercial fishermen. But he, he drugged this fish into our building, <laughs> dripping blood off the tail. And he goes, what is this? And so this is about six months before I came. And it was one of the first big head carp caught in Illinois. Um, in 1986, two had been caught, one in the Ohio River, one on the Illinois River. So this is a few years later, but still a pretty rare event. And the fisherman who spent his life out there yeah. had no idea what this fish looks like. Uh, if you can imagine a silvery salmon-looking fish with the head on upside down. Um, just to, That really characterizes <laughs> what a big head or silver carp looks like. And in this case, it was a big head carp. Um, I didn't, we didn't catch another one. Yeah, we didn't catch another one for, I think, four years. So that was 91. We caught our first, as part of a monitoring group, you know, we caught, you know, a million fish a year sometimes, um, fishing from June through October. So they were extremely rare. We caught our first big head carp in 95. I think um, silver carp was in 98. But really just onesies and twosies until 2000, until they reproduced. And, and that's really when when the light went off for me is we went from just getting a few and, and fishermen had started catching more of them. But all of a sudden in 2000, there's a reproductive event and we caught thousands of these big head carp that had reproduced for the first time uh, that we knew on the Illinois River. Um, so it went from this you know thing that commercial fishermen were worried about because they were catching them in their nets so now something is now it's in all the different types of gears uh, all life stages they're reproducing and it became really real at that point yeah once it became 
real and, and I mean, we'll get into it, but like the the implications that that really has for the ecosystems in general. But it seems fascinating to me that they can just explode in numbers so quickly and they do seem to be able to take over. And that leads me to my next question of how has this invasion of Asian carp impacted waterways in the state of Illinois? Well, it's, it's strange. So because I was in the position, I was able to actually look at some biological evidence through the 90s. Um, kind of queuing this up is like, what could the interaction be biologically with other fishes, with other things in the water? And so we mm-hmm. looked at those things that ate very similar food. You know, So these are planktivorous fish. They're eating plankton, uh, zooplankton, the, the small animals in the water, and the small plants, the phytoplankton. So they're eating these things that are generally green in the water. Um, what else eats those? Gizzard mm-hmm. shad, which is a forage species on the Illinois River, and a uh, big mouth buffalo, um, which is a sucker, catastomid, that also uh, feeds primarily on, on zooplankton most of its life. So started looking at those, just actually collecting data. What if something would go on? And over a period of just a few years, and we published right. about 2007, it was really clear. Gizzard, shad, buffalo are thinner after Asian carp became prevalent um, than before. Remember, we're working on this long-term data set. Mm. You know, it's a very valuable tool. So we had data yeah. before carp were, were really prevalent. And and that was one of the first statements really um, in North America, maybe even in the world, biologically in these wild systems that we saw this impact that big head and silver carp could have. Um, the other is obvious. Um, in the 1990s, we, we had very strong bass fishing tournaments on, on the Illinois River. So you have a boat moving 60 plus miles an mm. hour down the river. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's known for its waterfowl and occasional skiing, yeah. occasional skiing. Um, these are these are river systems, <laughs> not your typical uh, crystal clear lakes. But nonetheless, all outdoor yeah. recreation now has to consider what happens if a, a six or ten pound fish jumps out of the water right in front of me. Whether I'm on the boat, whether I'm being pulled by a boat, um, I'm recreating, I'm moving really fast. <laughs> People have to think twice. I even recall a few, at least in the early days, outdoor adventures, which you know would be a, a a John boat with trash can lids and a couple folding chairs to take people out because those silver carps, those numbers were growing oh, wow. as well. And they get in this area and, and the fish yeah. would jump and you can kind of predict maybe when the water got a little bit shallower, maybe there's brush in the water that you could make the fish jump at certain locations. So uh, a good uh, air quote guide uh, could take you to a location, put you there and have a fish or two jump in or hit your trash can lids. And so there were people doing that. And so <laughs> the risk was real. People could get hit. And there were always those stories of somebody yeah. breaking a jaw, getting killed. You know, there's, you know, we do lose a duck hunter occasionally uh, on the river and, you know, wow. You have to think, was that now a fish that hit the person out of the boat uh, or did he hit a log? Um, it's something, you know, I, I have to tell recreational water users, you have to have a life jacket on. You don't know where the threat is coming from. You slow up, 
speed down uh, the, the yeah the, exactly you jump from the boat and it's gonna do some damage if it hits you yeah just having that extra unknown threat i mean you can i've seen the videos and a lot of them are just they treat it as almost a, a funny thing and the more you watch it the more it gets scary like yes. they, these fish are huge and they are just flying out and it really is a big risk of of being on those waterways and decreases enjoyment of those areas what's really led to asian carp doing so well in these areas and how big can they actually get Sure. Great question. Um, first, these are large river fish. They're from Asia, uh, Asia or uh, countries in Asia. They're Chinese, uh, the famous aquaculture fish of, of China. Uh, they, they can grow together in, in very close quarters. They're eating um, this plankton uh, mix. And, you know, you can they grow so fast you can harvest them. So one of the most cultured fish in the world. We call it fecundity. They have high fecundity. They have many eggs. Okay, one one fish, uh, mm. maybe a forty pound fish, will have four million eggs. And and a big head carp can get four over million? four million. Four um, million. That one female. Wow. So it doesn't take too many to get to that point where you're now reproducing. And now, if you have a lot of them re- reproducing, they can saturate the environment. Um. They're very unique that they reproduce in the flowing water. Very few of our fish. We often think about spawning fish like our bass and our bluegills who have to go into the the backwaters or a non-flowing area that make a bed or even like a salmon making a red. They they deposit their eggs in a very precise location. Mm -hmm. Well, these are broadcast spawners. They uh, meet in conjugations of many fish in the middle of, of very turbid flowing water. Um, maybe when a, where an island comes together or below a lock and dam where there's all this turbulence and the female frankly turns upside down and the males surround her and she'll release her eggs and the males release their sperm and boom, you've got eggs that are fertilized and they're flowing downstream and they'll float for days, uh, maybe 48 hours before they become small larval fish. And then those larval fish can't really swim out of the current for another uh, half a day, all depending on temperature. So um, these rivers, which have to flow fairly good for this to happen, now the, the fish can be hundreds of miles away from the adults. Where, where the adults spawned. Uh, and eventually those larval fish then can get out of the current, flow back to the calmer waters um, where that plankton is prevalent. And they can go to the, they go to the shallow areas into where they can hide from predators, right? These are minnows. We often think of minnows being small. They, like, they get, mm-hmm. Big head carp can get 100 pounds, but these are minnows without spines. And uh, <laughs> so it means everything in, in, in the river can eat them. Uh, so they 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 do very good mm-hmm. in their in their life history to go downstream and then get out of the current and try to get back into places where they can be protected and grow. And they grow very quickly. Um, when they first reproduced in 2000 mm-hmm. on our Illinois River, um, we had good numbers of fish. You know, it didn't take very many of them to have a lot of fish. But they got to probably 15 to 18 inches. The end of that first summer. So maybe spawned in mm. June. They're over 15 wow. inches, maybe two pounds already. 
<laughs> they grew incredibly fast. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. That's so fast. They didn't have any competition from other carps and only the competition from our native planktivorous fish and, and recognizing that all fish when they're small eat plankton. Uh, today, those fish may only get six mm-hmm. inches long at the end of one year, and maybe not even that long, depending on what time of the year they were they were spawned. But there's so many Asian carp mouths out there to feed today that there's less yeah. quality food per individual, so they're growing much slower today, and they're thinner today, just like like we saw gizzard shad and buffalo being uh, thinner. Uh, in the 2000s, we even see Asian carp today being somewhat thinner and, and slower growing. Hmm. So would you say that they're almost reaching a new equilibrium in the ecosystem then? Or they're starting to kind of get down in size? It's, it's, it's something we're, at least I've thought about often. Um, the one thing is we don't have consistent spawning. Um, because it takes a little bit of a flood. On the Illinois River, we don't have spawning every year. Uh, maybe the Missouri River, because it's it's mm. a much wider, much larger watershed that have large flows every year. It'd be faster flows. They'll spawn all the time. But on the Illinois River, we don't see that. So we, we do see good spawns every three or four years. We may have a couple good years and then a few. Uh, so, so it's a little bit of ebb and flow. Um, almost a sine wave of, of peak densities and not so peak and right. it's kind of up and down. Um, and we do have harvest. Uh, we have, you know, when they're small up against to that six inches or so, they can probably be fed upon by birds and other fish. Um, right. So depending on how, you know, when do they get to that one pound size, when can they get beyond some of the predation? Um, so it's a very complicated web, uh, but I think there is a, a new e- equilibrium. It, it's it's not a clear ab- a total abundance, um, but we do see maybe 60, 70% of the total biomass out there today being Asian carp. But I think also it, it's filling what wow. I think is an empty niche because I think of the total biomass, and this is maybe more speculation than actual data, I think the total biomass out in our rivers <laughs> might be higher uh, with Asian carp today than what it would have been without Asian carp mm. 30 years ago. It's, it's something to think about, and I'm sure our ecologists can, can think on that more. I've kind of gotten out of uh, the ability to, to spend time on those questions. But but the biomass out there is extremely high. We haven't lost all the other species. Their numbers can be down. Some fish are doing well. Catfish in particular are, are, are seem to be doing as good or better in the presence of carp, whether they're feeding on them mm-hmm. or uh, just where they're uh, spending most of their time or less uh, interacting uh, with the food web of carp. Um, things like shad and buffalo are, are more dynamic. There is evidence our other sport fish like bass and bluegill and crappie are being affected because at least at times during their life, they're in competition for food. And at other times, they could take advantage of carpus food. So sometimes the effects aren't crystal clear. Mm, yeah. 
when you get into ecology, everything has so many different interactions. It's really, it's really difficult to have a cause and effect. I guess the most obvious one here is the cause and effect would be introducing the carp, but even then, it's still the the water is still pretty muddy when it comes to trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, very good, very well said. That that, that is clear. Um, you know, interesting. <laughs> and one thing I skipped over. As we go back to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and we talk about in the, I think that was in the late 50s, early 60s, she started talking about the, us humans using more uh, chemicals on the landscape and you know, killing off the insects and the frogs and, and things like that. This is really an answer to that concern because we could now bring a, something that eats plankton. Something is basically causing pollution in our catfish ponds in, in the southern U.S. Um, and can clean the water without throwing some type of chemical on there to control the algae bloom. And you'd have a, a product, a fish product for food, for fertilizers, to, to can, to, to make a protein powder out of, you know, this is what the rest of the world was doing. So why wouldn't you do this? So it made a lot of sense. And and. It was clear there were biologists on both sides of this argument, whether to, to do it or not. But, but I think it's interesting that EPA and Fish and Wildlife Service were all um, supporting this because it was a way we could do this without killing off our native environment, you know, w- without killing the frogs and the insects. Um, exactly. Speaking to that point. So Asian carp gets a bad rap. And I'm not trying to say I love Asian carp. But we do need to make sure we don't make these mistakes again. So you have to understand the story that they're brought over for pretty noble purposes to clean water, provide food. Um, but they got out of the barn and ex- expanded throughout the waterways. Mm. It's such a fascinating story of the reasons they were brought here. It, yeah, as you're saying, noble reasons when you try to do everything right, but maybe you just don't have enough time to, to look at every possible scenario. You mentioned earlier that one fish that weighed, I think you said 40 pounds could have 4 million eggs. Yes. Is that, does that increase as they get larger? It does. It does. That's, you know, at some point they, they, there's a, there's a curve there. Well, that number uh, will fall off, but you can see fish and they're pretty rare once you get over 80 pounds, but, and these large fish are are much, those are huge fish. Uh, and they get there surprisingly quickly. Uh, and they just eat like a baleen whale. They're eating the smallest wow. types of, of food sources out there. So, yeah, it's easy to see that uh, a fish can have more than 4 million eggs, can approach uh, 8 or 10 million eggs at a time. And these fish are so unique that uh, if there are three flood peaks throughout a year, uh, either an individual fish or a cohort, a group of fishes may spawn at the the first peak uh, during the, when the when the temperatures are appropriate, or may spawn over several or one of the the subsequent peaks. So not all of them will necessarily spawn at the same time. So they take they are really great invaders in, in this case, where they can take advantage of of variable uh, hmm. environment. And watersheds, we, we see them, the way they act on the Illinois River is somewhat different when I talk to my colleagues on the Missouri River or the Ohio River or the Southern Mississippi River. Um, they may be working just a little bit different uh, in those systems. 
interesting how how are they acting differently than those systems yeah specifically when it comes to reproductive uh capacity it, it seems like uh, when the temperatures are right on the missouri river um uh, there's always eggs in the system mm-hmm. so someone's always trying to spawn um Everything's there. The Illinois River is a very slow, lazy river. This is a an ancient Mississippi River basin for the lower two thirds of the river, which means it's an extremely wide floodplain, very mm. shallow, slow gradient for what is now a much smaller river, the, the Illinois. And so, most of the year, um, we don't have those. The, the the flows that would would trigger a spawn. So it takes these spring freshets, uh, rain events, and they're pretty variable. We might see it in, in April. Well, that's a little too early, so the fish may not be able to take advantage of it. But if it happens then again in July, the fish can respond. But it, it can't just happen in a day. It has to be a long, fairly uh, drawn-out increase right. in the flood, and it takes... And this is, again, a, a touchy-feely type of thing, but we can see it in the hormone datas of the fish and, and spawning them. <laughs> is it, it takes them a while. It might take them 10 days from where those waters are rising, and they kind of sense the, the mud in the water, the, the algae blooms, the flows picking up, and all of a sudden, they can take advantage of that. Um, so, the, I mean, they, they grew up taking advantage of the Yangtze River in China, which is 4,000 miles long. Um, and historically, they've been fished and wow, studied yeah. for thousands of years because it feeds lots of people. And there are areas of, of that uh, river that are known for the more lake-like. And, and the adults can live in the lake just fine. It's lots of plankton, and they, they can take advantage of that. But then when they spawn, they have to go back to the current. And then the eggs will drift down and actually... Below Three Gorges Dam is where those eggs, in, in very general terms, would get to the point of being larval fish. And then now below that Three Gorges area of the Yangtze River was a myriad of backwaters where those larvae fish historically would go mm. into those places. Now, the Yangtze River, like all other rivers, have been highly altered. These dams have been put in. There's levied off of these backwaters, and in those places too, Asian carp mm-hmm. are having a problem reproducing. <laughs> they can't get to all places where their life stages have to get. In fact, I think last year, um, China closed their fishing on the Yangtze River for for all fish, but you know, just wow. Fish like big head and silver carp could not complete their life cycles because of all these uh, effects of, of humans. Um, now, the thing that China has is they've got so much aquaculture, flooded, maintained, you know, aquaculture farming going on that they have significant production going on outside of the mm-hmm. rivers as well today. That's really interesting because it seems like the inverse problem of Asian carp are a threat to ecosystems throughout the Mississippi basin. But yet when their home range in China due to human interactions, they're starting to struggle. Right, right. Yeah, I was just going to build on that, David. You're absolutely right. So we have a very unique and very um, healthy relationship with some Chinese researchers. They're trying to support a vibrant fishery and and get their fisheries back in, in their large rivers and they've got challenges and, and but understanding what 
what's going on here? They don't understand the challenge of too many fish. Doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense to them. That, you know, <laughs> why is this a problem? Um, if you've had Asian carp to eat and it's done right, these things are delicious <laughs> because they eat plankton. Um, they have a delicious white flaky meat. They're, they're bony. Um, at the same time, the Chinese are, are watching us. We, we can look back at them and, and say, well, why don't you have a carp problem there? And it's because of sustained high levels of harvest over a long period of time. Um, they do use things like locks and dams. Let's call it a deterrent, right? Does that make sense mm-hmm. for us to do it? And we're using some of these things here, you know, appropriate placement of those. If we can do it ecologically responsibly, right? We're, we're trying to protect our native fish. So we, we have to keep that in mind first and foremost. You can't just stop all the carp and kill yeah. all the other fish uh, yeah. pathways as well. So <laughs> I have to remind my colleagues, we have to consider all of this at the same time. Otherwise, we just create another problem. Um, but then there's other technology, you know, uh, electricity and sound and, um, uh, in the Yangtze river, they have or at least had two freshwater dolphins. Um, one did get overfished, mm-hmm. um, I, I think accidentally, not intentionally, but they, they still maintain uh, a freshwater dolphin. So, you know, you, you've got to, di- those predators can do something different than, than what uh, just large fish can do. So, so having had back and forth, actually, we've learned how to fish these fish better by traveling to China and and observing how they're doing it. Talk to their fishermen, and I don't speak the language, but you get two fishermen in the in the room, and someone's got to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And we, we've learned enough to to figure out that they have what they use a unified method. <laughs> They'll fish a lake over a month or two month period of time to catch over 80, 90% of all the fish in the lake because they're taking them to market. We've been able to do that here and we can catch over 80% of the Asian carp in much smaller bodies of water in, in a couple of weeks. So we've been able to deploy that and use it in places wow. where we're more e- efficient at harvest as one of our strategies to, to help protect and prevent their spread. Yeah, that's super interesting that, yeah, you can really target those species. But I guess my question is, what are some of the methods that you're using so that you're making sure you're targeting those Asian carp, but maybe not targeting the native species at the same time? And uh, also just to add on to that, uh, are you looking at bringing dolphins into the Illinois River to help with the Asian carp problem? Broadly, dolphins, um, no. I I can't imagine the the, the ecological... I had to ask. No. uh, One would have to think it. Be curious, right? We we have never had that. South America has a freshwater dolphin as well. And um, why don't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It'd be be very unique, but boy, it'd be a challenge (laughs) for biologists and fishermen to have a freshwater mammal, I think. Um, They just go into a different level of care. Um, (laughs) Wow. Uh, So I don't think that's going to be on there. But to, to that point, is is increasing mortality is something that we can do to change the population. So how do we increase mortality? You know, yes, you can stock more predators and you can broadly think about that. You know, do we need more predators? Our river really has lots of predators, uh, whether it's a white bass, a smallmouth bass, a largemouth bass, a catfish, pelicans. We have huge groups of pelicans that are fish eating birds that come through annually. 
so, so we have predation, but how do we increase it even more? And how do you get those big fish out? Because once again, once you get to that certain size, even a pelican can, might take a one or two pound fish. But after that, right. it's very difficult. So fishing um, has been identified as something that we can target these big fish and be very effective because, and I think we've already talked about it in several ways, these are the largest fish out there in the water. They grow very quickly. We don't have other, we don't have many of these other large fish out there. Ones over, you know, 5, 10, 20 pounds are just not that prevalent. So we can target them with things like gill nets and trammel nets. Um, we can use large seines and sort fish. You know, if, if you bring them to the beach and they're, they're all alive, you can, you can sort them with good fish mm -hmm. and bad fish. But really, you know, in a, in a gillnet fishery, uh, which is, you know, one of the most common ways of fishing around the world, we do very well. Probably over 80% of all mm -hmm. the fish we capture um, are Asian carp. If you look at our total landings, uh, maybe 2% are sport fish. And uh, the, the biggest bycatch is, is smallmouth buffalo, which is a, a native uh, sucker. But those fish can go right back mm -hmm. into the water, brought into the boat, taken out of the net, put back in the water with nearly zero uh, impacts. We're not killing those fish. We're not harvesting those fish. We have the ability to sort, identify, okay. and, and throw them back. So we're harvesting currently in the upper Illinois River. As it gets closer um, to, to Lake Michigan, there's not at large commercial fishing. So we have a team of 10 commercial fishermen that work for our agency and we fish from february through december we took 1.3 million pounds out last year even with the the covid protocols and all the challenges that brought we had over 1.5 million pounds a year wow. before um, we have seen changes in the densities of fish at that leading edge drop almost 97 percent from sustained harvest in those upper pools wow. of the illinois river and more and more evidence is telling us from modeling that if we can go farther down in where actually commercial fishing exists and promote harvest, more, you know, basically increasing mortality of those fish uh, farther down on the river, we can do even better. So we're now working with uh, commercial fishermen, um, trying to figure out how do we uh, get awesome. more of these fish out because we're taking a million pounds out. They're taking three to 10 million pounds out. So can we double, triple their productivity for our management benefit? And we think, yes, we can. That's awesome. With collecting and uh, removing this huge amount of <laughs> fish, I guess we haven't really touched on this yet, but the Illinois River is is kind of the leading edge of this invasion as it moves uh, further and further into the extended reaches of the Mississippi Basin, uh, as I understand it. And it's it's getting close to the Great Lakes. As you're trying to protect the native species in your waterways, there still is so many other areas within the Mississippi River and other tributaries that can lead back into the Illinois. So does it almost feel like you're you're trying to plug one hole, but then there's a lot of different other leaks as well. And it, there's always going to be an endless supply unless there's a coordinated effort. Or does it feel that you're making a, an impact on, on these species? Yeah, I, it really feels like we're making an impact. Um, you know, things are flowing from north to south on the Mississippi River in general. Um, 
the Illinois River is just one major tributary, and it does connect with the Great Lakes, and that's why it's our our focus in Illinois right now is that, yes, we have them in the Mississippi River near St. Louis, and, and they've uh, been found all the way up in the Minnesota waters. Above some of these locks and dams, though, it, it has slowed. We don't see fish racing up there in these huge numbers. Um, Keokuk, Iowa is about halfway up the Mississippi River, and there's a kind of a natural barrier. There's one lock and dam there where they only can fish, in general, can only move through uh, the lock. And it's noted there be, for all the concerns you might have is that we don't see skipjack herring and the mussel species that host prevalent upstream of, of lock and dam 19. <laughs> but it's yeah. also a funnel. Uh, a pinch point for Asian carp. And we do have some Asian carp reproducing upstream of there. But we are also looking at some information from USGS and other researchers about putting a sound uh, in the lock. What if we had a sound, whether it's Death Leopard or uh, mm -hmm. Beethoven's Fifth, that, that the carp says, <laughs> I don't like that. I'm not going in that lock for nothing. So a lot of that work is being conducted over the next few years. To, can we do that and allow the native fish to go up there? Or can we otherwise mitigate for those native fish losses um, that, that can't go through the lock? So, so we're asking the right questions. We've got, you know, that, that's not con uh, concluded yet. On the Illinois River, we've got a series of, of controls already in place. And I talked about fishing, and, I, and that's just one part of it. So the two goals are, one, prevent the spread of these new systems. Or, Big head and silver carp are not present. Uh, and then two, you know, can we reduce mm -hmm. the impacts to our native fish where they're where they are very present? So yes, we can see that and, and we mm -hmm. have some work to do, but it's helpful. The harvest is preventing their spread and it's reducing their overall density. So that's answering that objective too. And, and helping to, to prevent their spread. But we also have three electric barriers. Think of a cattle fence in, in, in prairie country of Canada. Um, we use electric fences to say so you can right. go here, but don't <laughs> go there. Um, there are three repetitive barriers exactly. in Chicago to prevent fish in general. We think it's effective on, on any fish over six inches. I think this is so cool. To yeah. prevent their spread. And they're always on, and there's, they're maintenance intensive. They're always doing something. But the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers operates that, where uh, the canal has been built, you know, 30 feet deep, 160 foot wide at this point. But essentially, fish would have to swim through this location to get to the Great Lakes. And there are these three barriers there. So they're constantly working on that to make it better. They're actually going to be working on turning one on uh, that can be twice as strong with the electric field if needed, if something changes, if, if it has a risk. Thankfully, we've only ever caught one fish at or even close to the barrier. Um, we have caught two fish upstream hmm. of the barrier in 10 years, one in 2010 and one in 2017, a silver carp in 17, a big head carp in 2010. How they got through there, they physically could not have swam through the electric barrier at that <laughs> size. But were they carried either by a boat or a person, pushed, mm. pulled, or drug? Um, did they have help? They had to have help <laughs> to get around it. Um, 
but there's no char marks. There's no, there's no evidence. We've done the postmortems on these and we've looked and investigated it. And it tells us at least the most recent silver carp, it was probably below the electric barrier for a while. And then we found it in just a few weeks or months. So we have other monitoring in place. We're able to detect a rare fish very quickly which gives us confidence that we're, we don't have fish mm. running into the Great Lakes currently. That's awesome. That's great news to it, hear. It is great news. Uh, we really, we don't want these in the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are very special to uh, U.S. and Canada. We do uh, a lot of recreation there. It's a lot of drinking water, and it connects some big systems, and, and we do want to keep them out. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, I guess the next question is, has there been any detection in the Great Lakes? So you mentioned that there has been some past these barriers and it's 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 confusing, and but it's not a, a huge issue. These barriers are keeping any fish from passing through. But has there been any detection at all in the Great Lakes? So uh, this is where the definition of Asian carp is very important. <laughs> so if we talk about big head carp, mm. um, Big head and silver carps are the ones we're generally talking about, these fish that are jumping and flailing and growing and, and so dense and moving towards the Great Lakes. And, and in fact, at least three big head carp have been found in Lake Erie. Between Toronto and wow. Toledo, in those waters, they were very large fish. They'd been out in, in the water for some time. And if you think about how they were used, at least originally, so these were um, around 2,000, uh, let's say, but they were, they were growing up with catfish, and then there was cultural markets. I think Toronto, Cleveland, Toledo, um, where a live big head carp would have been desired for wedding feasts and cultural purposes. So there was live markets that you could buy them live. Now, did someone buy a carp thinking wow. they were having a big wedding feast, and, and the wife said, nope, we're having spaghetti. <laughs> and they, they threw the fish in the water, or was there a... <laughs> a cultural practice of releasing a fish. Some people have talked about, you know, maybe you, uh, you set one free uh, and got some um, religious credits <laughs> for, for doing that. Um, it's, it's not really, there are some of those practices going on, whether it happened with big head carp uh, where we think it probably did. We just can't tell how those three big head carp got in there. What we do know in Illinois, we found big head carp in catfish ponds people would hire people to bring up catfish from southern states and stock them throughout the chicago region so people could catch fish it's our urban fishing program did that happen in cleveland (laughs) did that happen in other places maybe detroit as well so so there's a couple real ways a, a fish hauler could have intentionally for food or unintentionally as a contaminant with catfish brought fish to the midwest uh so it's a long answer but three big head carp were found some time ago 20 plus years ago in lake erie and we've not seen any big head carp since that is absolutely fascinating yep grass carp is an asian carp and it has to be considered uh, as an asian carp um, for these four species in north america and there are some other asian carp species that we don't have in North America and we're not even going to talk about, but grass carp are found in Lake Erie and they have been found to be reproducing in tributaries of Lake Erie. And that's unfortunate. And 
Illinois is not attached mm. to Lake Erie, so I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. But nonetheless, they have found their way there. Grass carp have been used throughout the country to control aquatic vegetation, uh, to be a non-chemical control of some of the nuisance vegetation, as well as making its way into human food supplies, uh, live food markets. Um, today, many states and provinces do not allow live Asian carp, regardless of the species, including grass carp. But right. So, so again, depending on your definition, I'm not aware of any black carp in, in the Great Lakes, <laughs> nor any silver carp that have been caught in the Great Lakes. But, but th- at least three adult bighead carp, and not anything recent, and then Asian carps currently uh, being grass carp. That's really fascinating to hear. Th- yeah, the distinction between bighead grass silver and and black as well. Uh, I just want to I also want to be cognizant of, of your time too, because I know that it's kind of the end of the the meeting that we had scheduled. Is it okay to continue on with some more yep. questions or should we? Yeah, and, and just tell me to stop talking. You know, I, it is fascinating. I'm, I'm very lucky to have a career that I've been able to be the researcher and, and really then worked into uh, the state administration and program at I think we're making a difference. So I'm very proud of what we're doing. <laughs> so so I don't mind talking about it, but I can shorten some answers. No, no, I, I keep them long. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this so much. <laughs> awesome. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't getting in the way of, of something else in your, uh, that you're working on here. But uh, no, I, I really appreciate your time. And, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be chatting with you and learning because this is absolutely absolutely fascinating and super important work that you guys are your team is doing and and i'm yeah i'm i just want to help uh promote what you guys are doing and then and spread the word i appreciate it david it is one of my honors to to spread this news because i think it is something that we're all challenged with how to deal with the nuisance species and i've been able to to go to China and learn, and and uh, I've been given the ability to talk to many of the states and uh, provinces of Quebec and Ontario to figure out how to best manage this as a group. And so this is one of the things we can rally around. So the sharing of information and strategies is really important. Yeah. I think especially in a time when Canada, U.S. and China relations aren't always at, at their peak, let's say, it's things like this and issues that we can all understand and relate to and work together on that are, are really important and, and really highlight how we're really connected to these ecosystems and lands and, and how we should really value them. <laughs> People are people wherever you go, and it's really hard. I'm not a political person, but it's really hard to separate the politics from yeah. the, the work that everybody is so devoted to. And and there are great scientists. Um, frankly, I uh, did work with some central government uh, people in China, and they were a joy to deal with. You know, we, we didn't have any issues that we were in conflict with, and uh, this may or may not be – uh, appropriate for the group, but you can't just shut down a whole fishery that's 4,000 miles long in North America overnight, but they could do it in China. They're a communist country. No. And they know that. I mean, he kind of, you know, would smile, you know, <laughs> we can do that. You know, they can repurpose the, uh, the workers in a much different way <laughs> than we can do it in North America. Um, I mean, yep. You're going to be farming naval oranges right now, but, but good, I, I guess good for them. 
Um, yeah, but I, I have, I can't say that I had any bad experience with, with the people and I only learned so much for our benefit. Yeah, exactly. People are, people are people everywhere and we're all just trying to do our best <laughs> for what we're working on. I was going to give you an anecdote. We were taken to a, an aquaculture farm, a, a huge, like tens of thousands of acres. They showed us these unified methods. Well, I hate to call it a fishing village, but there were several houses there and one building and we were allowed to come over, actually fish one of their ponds uh, for a little bit. And uh, they had their garden and, and at time in the fall, it was well worked over except for about three rows of peppers, like kind of black, kind of like a Tabasco type pepper, but black mm. and beautiful looking peppers yeah. and just you know, branches were full but everything else the cabbages and the bok choy and everything else was pretty well picked over and a commercial fisherman that i brought from illinois um said hey can i try a pepper and i said sure <laughs> that pepper lit him up <laughs> there's a reason that there was all those peppers on the branches <laughs> he, he just touched that to his tongue and he just about wept and uh <laughs> just just think it out no matter where you are people may not they knew those things were hot <laughs> it's just kind of funny um they knew it they knew yeah, it <laughs> yeah poor dave that's yeah. awesome yeah you're always gonna have someone who comes in and just says let's try that let's try that and just goes right for it and, sure help yeah, yourself it, it's usually me and i just end up weeping <laughs> so what do you think is the future for Asian carp in North America? If you had a crystal ball and, and could look into the future about 20 or 30 years, what do you think we would be like? That's a great question because I hear a lot of people debating this, you know, how do we kill them all and what's the silver bullet? And I, I think as, as a part of the minnow family, being a minnow family being one of the largest family of fishes in the world, I think they're here. I think they'll be here for a while, but I think there are things that we, we can do to reduce their impacts and prevent their spread. I think we can be successful keeping them out of the Great Lakes, and we're putting a lot of effort to that end. And I think we can prevent them from getting into some of these other places with good policy. In Illinois, we have a Be a Hero Transport Zero policy, so we got to educate people. Don't free willy at the side of your lake when you're done with your minnows you throw them in the trash um you throw them out and feed the seagulls on the grass you, you don't move bait fish around <clears throat> with, with that being said i think also uh, looking at these fish what they are very fast growing high quality uh protein there's opportunities especially with covid where protein is needed our food supply has been compromised and there are challenges there. Um, we have the ability to, to use a novel, something new, and really we don't want it in the river. And we can take the people who might be hungry and, and give them an opportunity to have something high in omega-3s, low in contaminants. And it's, it's going to compare very favorably to tuna uh, pond raised catfish when it comes to contaminants. So I think developing this industry, they can also provide jobs in these river corridors in, in, uh, in the U.S. These river corridors are some of the most impoverished places uh, in our country. Um, from, from Illinois, parts of the Mississippi River, south to New Orleans, uh, you got the lower Missouri, the lower Ohio. Um, 
the jobs, I mean, historically, these are where everybody wanted to be, back in the steamboats, and that's where all these cities were, trapping and hunting. That's not the case anymore. There's a lot of poor people. And, and we can bring a skill set of fishing, um, shipping, um, you know, cargo, and, and, and wrap this up and, and start feeding people. And I, and I think that's something that can't be ignored, and we're actually having great success in bringing some of these fish products, just a simple ground product that can help people deal with the bones of these fish. Um, think of it like a, a, a sausage, what they call a chub pack that you might get at the grocery store. What if this is a, a fish that was flavored um, like taco meat? So you brought it home, you put it in your pan, you fried it up, and you, you, you build a taco. These fish are so mild, you, you can make a flavor, whatever your palate is like. Generally, North Americans, um, U.S. fish eaters, don't want a fishy tasting fish. <laughs> they want one that's bland. This fish fits the bill. That's what this fish is. It, it can be too mild at times. So um, there, there's good hope for uh, finding that and, and helping that be the tool to not get rid of all the fish. You can't, it's really hard to fish something to zero, but I think a success. And I think that's where the question started at the success is having 20% of the biomass being Asian carp and not 70% of the biomass in those places where they're so abundant. And that might mean a lot of places never see Asian carp. And so I think that's what, what I would hope in 10 or 20 years is at these low abundances, you know, we can return to doing some of the recreational activities. You're not getting hit every day. It'll be part of the system, but it'll be something that we're taking advantage of to our benefit instead of the fish taking advantage of it for theirs. Yeah, I think that that is exactly right. Like if, if life gives you lemons, then you've got to make lemonade. And yeah, maybe it's it's fish tacos or something like that. At some point, it's unrealistic to expect to get rid of this and go back to how it was before. It's a, almost an irreversible change. It's at least being able to help protect native species and also get some benefit out of it, especially as you were pointing out during COVID, there's hunger is a real thing and and people are are hurting right now and this might be a, a pivot point for this industry to to kick off do you think there's anything that is really holding it back other than the like kind of the bony texture or if someone was listening to this podcast and was like i want to i want to try this how can i get my hands on some asian carp for dinner tonight what what's the next step we're getting really close um so it's a chicken and egg thing you can't create this thing overnight um these waters a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. turn of the century, were uh, some of the best uh, commercial fishing programs in the country uh, of North, um, probably North America. Uh, I'll say the U.S. because in the U.S. it was the um, the Great Lakes, it was the Columbia River and the Illinois River responsible for the bulk of commercial fishing that you know found restaurants and and fish markets and everything all across the country. So in Canada, you're a little bit more broad with First Nations mm -hmm. and uh, some of the other indigenous uh, fishing that was going on. But but certainly in the U.S., late 1800s, the Illinois River mm -hmm. was there. So it's going to take a while to build up that infrastructure. Most of our fishing infrastructure, as with Canada, is built towards our coasts. Uh, 
these big freighters that bring in the fish and process them in real time. And mm-hmm. uh, so this is a little different system. And it may not be ever as big as some of those uh, Pollock fisheries or, or some of the whitefish uh, off west. But um, I, I think it takes some time and, and right people. And I think we have those people. So if someone wanted to try Asian carp, um, I think our ifishillinois.org website will help get uh, people to that location very soon. Um, we have people interested. Awesome. Um, carp, unfortunately, is a four-letter word. Remember, common carp were brought over by our European uh, ancestors in, in the 1880s. Common carp are bottom feeders. They they eat down in the water column, eat the vegeta- down mm-hmm. in the vegetation and the mud, picking up invertebrates, and their flesh can be stronger than most. Um, it's not bad. I've had good common carp, but carp's a four-letter word, and and people recognize carp being a four-letter word. If you say it, they wrinkle their nose. Carp. <laughs> um, so there may be ways we can talk about Asian carp and change that perspective, whether it's a um, a brand or just being consistent and talking about it. Um, I would mm. expect something midsummer um, to help get us over the carp phobia. And, and we're working with some really keen people um, as far as marketing and branding uh, to make that awesome. happen. Uh, we had a big carp, um, Asian carp cook-off in October from Chicago to um, nearly Cairo um, in Illinois, and it was highly successful. People try it. They always like it. So so we have a lot of promise, And but you did nice. mention it, it, it takes fishermen, it takes processors, it takes someone driving a truck. Currently, the market is that, frankly, the fishermen for the last 10 years have been their own logistics. You know, they'll catch fish, they'll truck them in their boats behind their pickup trucks three or four hours to someone who can take it and process it. So you can see, number one, quality is not there. The fishermen are now truck drivers. So we feel that this is starting to come together. Mm -hmm. Fishermen can fish. Truck drivers can drive trucks. Let's address the quality control. Make sure we have the highest quality. And um, we can bring that tool. Again, Mm -hmm. fishermen being this biggest tool that can start changing the, the populations in our rivers uh, to meet those two goals of preventing their spread and reducing their abundance. So that will start in earnest. And we've been eating them here in the U.S. for a long time. Um, I'm sure in, in Toronto markets, you can still find uh, fillets of big head carp. Mm-hmm. But we think some other products, what we call value-added products, can help us. I've had some hot dogs made out of carp five or ten years ago that were as good as any any hot, hot dogs. Wow. I mean, protein's protein. So you can grind it up, and it's not it's not like you're eating yeah, a exactly. fish dog. It was a hot dog. And that was a startup. It was a local company. Uh, I would say it was 90% there. It wasn't ready for prime time. But um, it will not surprise me. If the hot dog doesn't win this battle, it would not surprise me. We actually served them as corn dogs at our state <laughs> fair. Um, everybody loved them. Amazing. Yeah. Well, that's so good to hear. And I, I think that's such a promising and, and such a positive thing to come from this. 
I'll definitely post some things in the show notes for this podcast, links where people can go to learn more about this and where they can find some of these products. I'm excited to learn more as in the summer more news comes out and as this industry begins to really grow. There's a lot to talk about it. And if you if you do your your products, right, you're going to have secondary products. You'll you'll have some pet feeds and there's a Canadian company making some um pet food out of Asian carp. Um but you can also make fertilizers, right? Because you, you take your premium cuts and, and then the, everything else. When you go into a Chinese plant, nothing comes out of there besides product. Um, we're working with the Iceland Ocean Cluster, who said, you know, a cod is not worth just $12. A, a cod is worth $2,000 or $1,200 because you can take everything out. This is going to be leather. This is going to be wow. a, a pharmaceutical and we're going to use the liver for this. And so if you take every possible piece of value out of there, now it's not just a $5 fish. Now the fishermen can actually get paid what they need to, to do what they have to provide ice and quality and everything else just falls in place. It, it takes a mm-hmm. little while, but um we've got that type of thinking going on today. Yeah, that's exactly where we need to be. I'm I'm curious, what do you think is the most undertold story of the Asian carp invasion? Mm. Well, we kind of talked on a couple different issues. I mean, the, the, the one is, is that this, this leading edge is getting closer and it's inevitable they're going to get to the Great Lakes. And I think we're actually have turned the tide and it's the opposite. We see fewer fish at that leading edge. We have more Ooh. tools. Um, over the last 10 years, we've learned so much. We don't need to operate in an information vacuum. We actually have data that can tell us what's going on. And I spend a lot of time telling people, like, you know, <laughs> the sky is not falling. We have some really good things in places, in place already. <laughs> um, we actually have a partnership with the state of Michigan. And Illinois has partnered with the Army Corps of Engineers uh, to work on a project, uh, pre-engineering and design work for a project at Brandon Road Lock and Dam. Another line of defense uh, to make sure nothing mm. gets into the Great Lakes. That's, those are engineering uh, solutions, and we'll call them defense, right? And, and the other things we're talking about, harvest and taking a fight to the fish and removing them, that's offense. <laughs> so so we're, we're developing a a terrific offensive plan. Mm, We've right. got defensive um, things in place in spades. Uh, we'll have four different uh, barriers in place. And uh, we also have detection work um, and response plans in place. What if something surprises us? Uh, make sure they're not in the Great Lakes. We're using all kinds of tools. And um, so, I, I mean, I don't think we're in... We, we can't stop what we're doing, like mowing your grass, right? The grass is growing. We can't stop doing anything. It's not solved. But doing what we're doing is, <laughs> is reducing the risk and a place where we're buying time for, for these other things to take hold in place. Um, I think the other thing, you know, frankly, is, is the other part of the, the, the coin. It's surprising that these fish actually taste good. And that's going to be part of its downfall is that we can take advantage of that. Those two things is that we've got tools in place and actually we're going to use the carp's best qualities against itself are the things I like to get out more than anything. 
yeah, the taste factor is going to be huge and, and getting that out there. And it sounds like you guys are really pushing that and incorporating into a lot of state activities, which is fantastic. I was just making a note here as uh, as you were describing um, as kind of the offense and defense. And I was imagining you and your team are the offensive coordinators for the, the team fighting uh, Asian Carp and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers are the defensive coordinators for the football yeah. team. You have scouting reports on the on the other team. And yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and we scouting reports is great. Chicago Bears. Absolutely. Watch out. But, you know, I've been working with the Corps of Engineers, and, you know, they're the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And, and some of those uh, maps, you, you call them uh, plans, but they're battle plans, right? Where, where's the enemy at? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so so there's lots of ways you can think about it. I like the sports analogy <laughs> much better. But yeah, where's the enemy? Where's the enemy at? You get caught in some with you know, I've been in the Pentagon talking to the Assistant Secretary of the Army uh, about some of these efforts. That's pretty intimidating. Going to the, wow. the Pentagon, and you're talking to Asian carp. That's so cool. So no, they're great partners because they are laser focused, and to think that they're operating some of the biggest electric barriers in the world to protect the Great Lakes from Asian carp. It's pretty amazing. I mean, with everything else they have to do in the world, building bridges and, and, and yeah. <laughs> uh, rescuing people and doing everything they do. So what what a great uh, team we have. That's fantastic. And, and, you know, I guess, you know, we didn't talk about that, David. It, it's, the, the partnership is so important because the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative dollars came on about 10 years ago when we needed it the most, you know, we're trying to protect the great lakes and it was recognized early on that um, if Asian carp get in the great lakes, that's going to be a problem. So they we're well funded to do this task. That's not always the case. So, so we are well funded. Um, I don't think we're overfunded. <laughs> you know, there, I, I can always do a little bit more, but, but we're adequately funded for this huge task. So the state of Illinois um, is supported that way. Corps of Engineers, our Fish and Wildlife Service, our USGS partners, um, and our other states that are battling these other things around the Great Lakes. So, so having the funding and the support that way is something that can't be under um, discussed. Yeah, those partnerships are so key. And it's, it sounds like you have a great team working on this. It is. I guess so for someone listening to this podcast that they just get super jazzed about Asian carp and they're, they're feeling passionate and they, they want to help in protecting native species from invasive carp. How could they get involved? What would you say to uh, someone who maybe lives near the Mississippi or the Illinois, or maybe they live far away? They live in Alberta, Canada, where, where I'm calling you from. What would you say to citizens? When I talk to people in Illinois, and it doesn't matter where you are, is that here's the biggest thing, because you're out on the landscape. You have a boat. You're going from this uh, lake um, or watershed or river to another one because you're going to kayak and enjoy the day or you're fishing. Um, you have to take care of what you, you're doing. Um, so in Illinois, I think I mentioned we have a, a campaign, Be a Hero, Transport Zero. So every time you're out there, you leave a body of water, you have to make sure everything is drained. You know, that piece of vegetation that gets caught out on the prop, you have to take and remove mm-hmm. that, throw it away at the boat ramp. 
because whether it's a Eurasian water milfoil or hydrilla, or if if a Asian mm-hmm. carp or young Asian carp are in the live well of your boat by drying everything out, now you've reduced that risk to near zero of you being part of the problem. And that's important because some people um, say, well, I don't go to the Illinois River. I don't go to the Great Lakes. Well, if you go to the Mississippi River (laughs) and introduce something, we're connected. Now it's up in the Illinois River because someone Mm -hmm. else brought it. And the next thing you know, it's, it's being then and pushed on uh, into the Great Lakes. So everybody has to do their part, and all of those are equally important. You know, we have to have good regulations and policy to make sure we're we're not putting these things out into the public and making sure people are responsible, Um, and people have to make sure their activities are good. So power washing their boats and trailers uh, every time. uh, I like to think about Cousin It back in the day, Adam's family. We don't want cousin it being pulled down the road on a trailer. You've seen that where the vegetation's hanging off the wheel wells. (laughs) That that is punishable in Illinois. That that's illegal. Yeah. (laughs) So we we just need to do the right thing. Yeah, and it's across the continent. It's across the world, really. Try to not bring new species or even pathogens uh, into new areas. I mean, in in Alberta, one thing that we are really starting to deal with a lot is is whirling disease and the introduction of that and really affecting the trout and salmonid species up here. And it doesn't have to be just a plant or a fish. It can be a disease or something like that. So making sure everything is drained and everything is is dry and clean uh, before you introduce it into a new water body is really important. Right, yeah. We have a website. It's www.transportzero.org. And it walks you through all those steps, right? Remove, drain, dry. Um, but it's so important. One of our best rules or, or laws we have on the books is about VHS, viral hemorrhagic septicemia. Got to have everything drained. Mm. So if we're stopping a virus, guess what? We're pretty yeah. darn good at stopping the Asian carp. We're pretty darn good at stopping those plant fragments because we're <laughs> We're saying you can't have a, a wet boat and you can't have things visibly on the side of your trailers when you're moving them around and you can't move water from one place to the other. What a great, it, it is a common sense rule. It should, mm-hmm. shouldn't be the VHS rule. It's the common sense rule. A- and it's something that we use here in Illinois. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been very successful, really. That's great. That's great news. And uh, I guess, you, well, you already kind of touched on where people can find out more, but for listeners who, who want to find out more about the work that you guys are doing, they can go to that website about those rules and guidelines on, on how you should be transporting watercraft or, or just moving between watersheds. But what about if people are interested in, in the work that you guys are doing to control Asian carp? Yes, I, I would say go to uh, www.asiancarp.us. Um, very similar to our uh, Canadian asiancarp.ca websites. Um, <laughs> but our asiancarp.us yeah. does have everything we're doing up to date, our annual monitoring response plans, what we're doing, how we're doing it. And then we, we publish sister or companion documents. Um, we call them interim summary reports. So what did happen? What did we find last year, the year before? And all those topical news uh briefs that you know that come up on on our activities both on the illinois and throughout the great lakes 
Uh, lastly, I would say for Illinois DNR fisheries Fantastic. is um, org. So www.ifishillinois, all spelled out, .org. And we'll have all of our fishing highlights there, but a lot of our nuisance species and Asian carp. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. So go check out those links. They'll be in the show notes as well. And go check out what they're doing down in Illinois. It's uh, it's really impressive stuff. And I guess just to finish off, uh, Kevin, if people are interested in pursuing a career in this space, could you just give us an idea of, of how you, I mean, you touched on it at the beginning, but just how, how you got to where you got to today and a bit of a bit of your journey that uh, took you to um, to your role with the with uh, the state of Illinois. Sure, I, I will try to be brief. Um, I'm a Great Lakes person. So I grew up in Northwest Ohio, uh, fishing on the Maumee River, uh, Western Lake Erie, um, throughout the '70s. So uh, always enjoy being outdoors. Um, my uncle worked for the state of Michigan as a district mm-hmm. fisheries biologist. And after you got, I overcame a desire to be a, a paramedic or a firefighter as a, as a young boy. You know, it's like, he's got it pretty good. <laughs> he gets to go fishing for a living. So I did go uh, to Northland College and got my bachelor's of science degree and uh, followed up with some graduate work at Michigan State University. Really prepared me well uh, when I came to the Illinois River Biological Station at the Illinois Natural History Survey in 1991. Going out on the river, really understanding a lot of dynamics of of the fish communities there. Um, And the surprise of an Asian carp explosion on the Illinois River, which piqued my interest. And, And I guess the best thing of all of that is I had colleagues and supervisors that encouraged um, looking in and investigating those types of things. You know, it wasn't our mandate to report on Asian carp. It was to collect good information Mm, and data. But here was a problem that was pretty obvious as it was growing up and we were able to get some information and and, uh, start some research here in the U.S. that just wasn't being done. very exciting, and, and I think um, I've been very lucky. I actually think we're doing something about the problem, making it better uh, with the work. I get to work with my mm-hmm. colleagues today in Illinois and across the Great Lakes Basin to make this happen. Well, that is so fantastic, and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, I've Really, I feel like I've learned so much and I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure the listeners are going to be thrilled with this episode and and, uh, and be checking out all of the links and, um, and trying to find out more about what, we're, what you're doing down in Illinois. Well, thanks for your interest and the time on this topic. Um, uh, we, we certainly have to tell the story because uh, it's not over yet, but, but we do want to do the very best we possibly can. So thanks again, David. Thanks for tuning into today's episode about Asian carp. I'll put links in the show notes about all of these different companies that are starting to create products using Asian carp that you should probably check out because they're very cool. I'd just like to thank Kevin Irons for spending the time to chat with me about this amazing topic. 
Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast because we will be releasing the full deep dive interviews with Chuck later this week. I'm so excited that I had the chance to speak with all of them because they all brought such different perspectives, but all working towards the same goal of how do we prevent further spread of these invasive species and how can we deal with their current problem. Thanks again for all of that help, guys. If you want to help with the Asian carp crisis, you can do so if you live in the Great Lakes area by reporting any fish that seems a little bit strange. Kevin describes big head and silver carp as silvery large fish that look like they have their head on upside down. I think it's a pretty good description. I'll put links in the show notes about different websites where you can learn more about this topic and where you can actually report potential Asian carp that you might have found to local authorities so that they can take them for investigation. One thing that we can all do to prevent the spread of invasive species, especially aquatic invasive species, is be really careful with when we move between different water bodies. So if you are moving a boat, make sure that your boat is drained and dry and doesn't have any stowaways on board. So no mussels, no pieces of plant material, no fish in a live well, and no bait that goes between different lakes. Please don't release any fish into any water body if it's not originally from there. That means I'm looking at you goldfish, I'm looking at you minnows for fishing. All of these types of fish can really be destructive if they're released and able to breed out of control. So please don't bring anything to where it's not supposed to be. And hopefully we won't have any more crises on our hands. Recently, it was discovered that moss balls used in aquariums across Western Canada by aquarium hobbyists had actually been hiding a little secret stowaway along with them. Zebra mussels were being brought in and were being sold at pet stores in these moss balls. So these are really examples of ways that we can introduce new species unwittingly. And we have to be really careful. So if you have moss balls in your aquarium, please let your local conservation officer know. I'm the host and producer, David Evans, and I would just like to thank the rest of the team from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, specifically to Paula Polman, Sophie Cervera, Anna Bettini. Thanks for all of your help. To learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing here in Alberta, telling the story of water, check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.org. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Get excited for next Monday when we release our episode all about coal and what's happening right now in Alberta. We talked to Colton Vesey, a geoscientist who studies environmental geochemistry, who knows so much about how mining can influence water systems and what might be happening to the water systems that are coming out of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains due to coal mining. Make sure you're subscribed. You won't want to miss it. Thanks, and it's been a splash.